This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Greetings, one and all. Thanks for coming back for another healthy and nutritious China History Podcast episode. Laszlo Montgomery here, bringing you part three in this latest CHP series that looks at the history of the Thai Chinese. And as an extra added bonus, and no charge, of course, you're also getting a smattering of Thai history as well. I wasn't taught in my high school. We left off last time with Burmese king Xin Junxin's brutal and destructive conquest of Ayutthaya. This kingdom that lasted 416 years was smashed by a vastly superior Burmese army, led by one of those occasional warrior kings who came down hard on the kingdom of Ayutthaya at a time when the place was, well, it was ripe for taking down. And then the Burmese king's army destroyed the city to such an extent that it was unlivable. And as promised, we're going to look at a popular 18th century figure from Thai history who stepped up and came to the nation's defense at what was certainly one of the darkest hours in all of Thai history up to that time. And this was Taksin the Great. He was born in 1734, two years later than His Excellency, George Washington, over in the American colonies. He was a Lokchin. Remember that term from part one? Mixed Thai Chinese. His mother was a native Thai. And his father, well, he was surnamed Zheng. And he came from Huafu Village, Chenghai City, in Shantou, right on the banks of the Han River, right near where it flows into Shantou Harbor, a port from whence countless tens of thousands of native Diochu sons and later daughters embarked on their own overseas adventures. Many Diochus referred to this Hanjiang as the Mother River. Taksin's Chinese name was Zheng Zhao. His early years are the stuff of legends, not a whole lot to hang on to. His father died young, and he was raised by his mother. As the story goes, he grew up and became a merchant trader, a caravan master, actually. And in this line of work, one gets a lot of practical experience fighting bandits and marauding gangs who meant great harm. One of the parts of Siam he found himself often was in Tak a province halfway between Bangkok and Chiang Mai. And Zheng Zhao, well, his Thai name was Sin. And whilst residing in Tuk, he became quite close to the governor, who became his patron. And it was in the fateful year of 1760 that Sin assumed the leadership of Tuk, and he took on the name of Tuk Sin. The years of his early rise are filled with all kinds of stories. He was a born leader and knew how to lead men into battle. And as we all know from part two, 1760, the Burmese king, Xin Junxin, invaded Siam. It'll take seven years, but he eventually does succeed in his objective of destroying Ayutthaya. And between 1765 and 1767, when the fate of the whole kingdom of Ayutthaya hung in the balance, Taksin assembled a fighting force and led these troops south in the direction of the capital to aid in its defense. 
But as I said last episode, mid-18th century, Burma was too great a force. Between the overwhelming offense of Xin Junxin's army and the sheer incompetence in the Ayutian leadership at that time, Taksin abandoned what he knew was a lost cause for the sake of living to fight another day. And when King Xin Junxin's troops breached the city walls and began to tear this once great city limb from limb, Taksin was leading his followers south. He needed a safe place where he could regroup, build up an army to return and fight the Burmese. After Taksin and his troops busted out of the besieged city, seeking a safe place of refuge, Taksin knew. What better place was there than amongst his own people, the Diochus? In Taksin's time, the Diochus were mostly clustered in the cities, towns, and villages between Pattaya and Trat, and also near the southern border of the kingdom near Malaysia, Chantaburi, Rayong, and Trat. These were Diochu strongholds. The Hokkien, at that time, had mostly been clustered in the north, near the destroyed capital of Ayutthaya. Stories and legends abound, recounting Taksin's bravery as he fought his way south, defeating the Burmese at every turn. He made it safety and into the embrace of the Diochu community. There, Taksin rebuilt his army. Gone were the days when the military was dominated by the noble class who served as the officers. Now, it was strictly meritocracy, and new men were given chances to rise to the fore and prove themselves. If they demonstrated the sufficient amount of loyalty and bravery, eh, they could do well in Taksin's world. After Taksin emerged victorious in the end, he will apply this thinking to the government as well. He was a very strict disciplinarian in the legalist sense. Many came to resent him for his perceived harshness, but when he whipped the army into tip-top shape and they drew first blood against the Burmese army at Tunburi, no one could deny Taksin knew what he was doing. Mind you, this was not the same Burmese army of April 1767. They were a little worn out by now. If you recall from past CHP episodes, the Qianlong Emperor launched four invasions of Burma in 1765, 1766, 68, and for the last time in 1769. These were part of his so-called Ten Great Campaigns, the Shichuan Wukong. The Burmese part of these Ten Great Campaigns ended up being a bloody disaster for the Qing army. One interesting thing of note, however, was that the borders that the two sides eventually agreed to are the borders that exist to this day. So the Burmese had a lot of resources tied up, and this made things a little easier for Taksin as he fought his way north to take back what the Burmese had taken. It only took seven months after the fall of Ayutthaya for Taksin to take it all back. Well, mostly all that is. He's going to end up tamping down fires for the next several years, and it took a little time to consolidate his power. The city of Ayutthaya as I said last time, destroyed, beyond repair. So Taksin had to look for a new capital for his kingdom, and he went to Tunburi and set it up there. Today, Tunburi is a district of Bangkok, and 252 years later, Bangkok is still the capital of Thailand. February 1768, Taksin was declared king. He was the king of Siam, but at the same time, he had deep Chinese roots. 
And in the 18th century, the ethnic Chinese of Siam had grown extremely powerful and very well connected throughout the entirety of Southeast Asia and into the individual villages stretching from southern Fujian to eastern Guangdong. Time and again, Taksin would depend on the ethnic Chinese to watch his back and work with him to rebuild the kingdom. Let me introduce one such ethnic Chinese whose contribution was most noteworthy. There was a Hokkien guy named Wu Rang. That's how it's pronounced in Mandarin. He was from Zhangzhou, which means he was Hokkien. So they had their own way to pronounce those two characters. This Wu surname, the Kotian Wu, was pronounced Hao in Hokkien, but don't quote me on that tone. In 1750, Wu Rang sailed from Zhangzhou in southern Fujian to Songkla. Songkla is in the south of Thailand, almost at the Malaysian border, just north of Patani. This is where Lin Daoqian resided after hanging up his pirate sword, if you remember. In 1769, when Taksin was seeking friends who could support him, Wu Rang became a very rich and influential somebody down in those parts, thanks to his patronage of King Baromakot. He was able to get everybody in those parts to band together and side with Taksin. And later on, Taksin is going to show his appreciation by, well, among other honors and riches, giving Wu Rang the exclusive concession for all trading of bird's nest. You all know what this is. Bird's nest soup, yen wo, that rich and nutritious solidified saliva from certain swiftlets, quite profitable. And Siam was a favorite place for these birds to build their nests. In 1775, Taksin made Wu Rang governor of Songkla. In time, Songkla became like a municipality that reported directly to the capital in Tunburi rather than to the province. Thanks to Wu Rang's loyalty at a very critical time and his importance to Taksin in the founding of the Tunburi kingdom, the Wu clan later took on the surname Na Songkla and became one of the most powerful families in Thailand and eight generations of Wu clan members ruled Songkla for 126 years till 1901. Their political longevity, like all the so-called Hokkien Rajas, was due to their loyalty to the monarchy, intermarrying with their princes and princesses, and cultivating royal favor and weaving webs of relationships with Bangkok elites. And south of Thailand were all the Malay states, and for a very long time, the borders of Thailand and Malaysia shifted north and south depending on the political and power dynamic in that part of the country. In the 18th century, it wasn't the most peaceful border, and for Taksin to have a loyal and dependable force down there with Wu Rang and his Hokkien followers allowed him to sleep better at night. And even after Taksin is gone, the new king will look at the situation down there and conclude, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We'll come back to the Wu family, or Hao family, as they were better known as, who later on took on the Na Songkla surname. For now, let's return to Taksin the Great. It took till about 1770 for Taksin to put the last of his rivals away. His greatest enemy? Still his neighbor to the west, Burma. They were trying like crazy to snuff out Taksin's kingdom before this new Siamese polity was able to plant any roots. But they were 
not successful, and Taksin was able to take back most all the lands of the former Ayutthaya kingdom. Chiang Mai was still in Burmese hands. Taksin was unable to seize that part. Not yet, anyway. And when it came time to organize his government, Taksin had a broad range of loyal people who had stuck with him since the 1760s, and he put all of them in positions of power. 1774, after Burma's warrior king, Xin Junxin, was able to fight the Qianlong armies to a draw, with both sides declaring victory and signing a truce, well, this freed up a big chunk of the Burmese military, who were now free to go attack Taksin's new Tunburi kingdom. But just when he was commencing the attack, a Mon uprising in Burma flared out of control, and this took precedence over the uh, situation in Siam. Only then, with King Xin Junxin distracted with domestic troubles in 1774-1775, did Taksin find the time right to go in and take Chiang Mai and incorporate that former Lanna kingdom into the Tunburi kingdom. Again, Tunburi, because that was where Taksin set up his capital. And today, this is a district of Bangkok, just south of the Grand Palace on the other side of the Chao Praya River. And then another stroke of good fortune for Taksin. The health of the Burmese king, Xin Junxin, started to fail. And after two awful years of suffering and a failed attempt to take back Siam, he passed on June 10th, 1776. And that was it for the Burmese campaigns in Siam. And Chiang Mai has been part of the Kingdom of Thailand ever since. Taksin owed a great deal of his success to the ethnic Chinese in general, and for the solid support he received from the Siamese Diochu community. The economy had been in the doldrums since the 1760s, and though he was doing many different tasks at the same time, he knew restoring the economy was paramount, and for this reason too. Having the Diochus behind him did wonders in digging themselves out of the mess they were in. And Taksin turned to China, to the Qianlong Emperor to try and crank up the tribute trade that had ended once Ayutthaya fell in 1767. In order to get this going, he needed the Qianlong Emperor's stamp of approval to acknowledge his legitimacy. But some rival of Taksin had gotten to the Qing court first and spread all kinds of negative rumors about Taksin and even told the emperor Taksin was just some usurper. Not a good word in Chinese history. So Taksin struck out with China and would have to try again another day to get the Qianlong emperor to smile benevolently on his Tunburi kingdom. And he wasn't having much luck with his neighbors either in Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. They too didn't recognize him and rebuffed his efforts to establish relations. Without any hope of reviving tribute trade, there was always private trade. Once again, Taksin turned to the Diochus on the east coast of Siam and their merchant network that was unrivaled anywhere in the kingdom. And he laid out a long buffet table of incentives and opportunities for them. This included entrusting them with the royal trade monopoly. They got whatever they needed from Taksin, and in return, they delivered on jump-starting the economy, restoring commerce to normalcy, and getting the, the heart pumping again in domestic and South Seas trade. 
He didn't have any tribute trading privileges, but plenty of Siamese products made its way to China in these vessels called junks. Royal support in trade and commerce yielded quick results. Taksin even bid out the rights to scavenge around the destroyed city of Ayutthaya to mine for gold and other precious treasures amidst the rubble there. And the Diochus were trusted by Taksin to act in the capacity of envoys to China, to plead his case in their diplomatic endeavors. There was finally an opening for Taksin when his soldiers captured a group of Chinese prisoners held by the Burmese. He gathered these captured Chinese soldiers and officials and returned them safely to China, postage prepaid. And when word got to the Qianlong Emperor about what a solid Taksin had done for China, he began to soften his stance on establishing diplomatic relations. In 1781, Taksin followed this up with a tribute mission that went overboard in the gifts and tribute to Qianlong, and this pretty much did the trick, and everything warmed up between Taksin's Twinbury Kingdom and the Great Qing Empire. But just as Taksin's star was burning at its brightest, he was overthrown in a palace coup. He had never really made the transition from military man to political ruler. He still used strict measures to punish those who failed him and had made decisions at his court that garnered him a lot of enemies. It ended up being his own son-in-law, Tong Dun, his most trusted military general, who turned on him and carried out the coup. And the day after he overthrew Taksin and declared an end to the Tunburi kingdom, he declared the commencement of the Chakri dynasty. This was on April 7, 1782. Taksin the Great was duly executed, and that was that. Tong Dun had then declared himself Rama I. He was the founding monarch of the same dynasty presently reigning in the kingdom of Thailand, the Chakri dynasty. The current king is His Majesty Wacharalong Korn, also known as King Rama X. And what followed Taksin's demise was one heck of a bloody purge that saw almost but not quite every last loyalist and follower of Taksin banished or executed the government was completely cleaned out of all Taksin people, which, as we know, no matter which country we come from, that's a pretty common political rite of passage, although these purges are not always bloody. And though we'll get to this in a second, although Rama I had to deal with a lot of wars and battles, the kingdom of Siam was getting ready for a nice, long stretch of relative peace and major prosperity. Taksin didn't have enough time to really rebuild the capital. He had located it to Tunburi, but it still needed some work. The Tunburi Chinatown, in the best part of Bangkok, was relocated to a much less favorable location in Sampang. And there, on the banks of the Chao Praya River, where the former Chinatown once stood, Rama I built the Grand Palace wasn't what you'd call a fair trade, but the Chinese residents of Bangkok, once again, rolled with the punches and, like always, played the long game. So this is where the Bangkok period of Thai history begins, right here, with the founding of the Chakri dynasty and the capital in Bangkok. Most of the ethnic Chinese living in Thailand today come out of this period. So peace had finally come to Siam. By 1786, the last of the warring with Burma came to an end. 
War was always good for the economy, but not as good as peace was. What began under King Rama I was an explosion of trade, the likes of which had never been seen before. And one thing about this king, he was a real expert when it came to trade, maximizing profits, the annual trading schedules, and when was the perfect time of the season to sail. He knew his stuff. And as far as maximizing the profitability of the royal trade monopoly, he knew how to masterfully handle this, too. The hottest-selling, most profitable commodities were all under the umbrella of the royal trade monopoly. If you dealt in these products, you had to sell them to the king, and he would go on and sell them to the Chinese or other buyers. It was a license to print money. And King Rama I surrounded himself with the best people. He had a very top-rate Chinese fraklong named Chin Kun, who was the patriarch of a very distinguished Siamese family. He had made a name for himself as one of Taksin's military commanders, but had demonstrated immediate loyalty to Rama I. As King Taisa's Chinese fraklong became a, almost a brother to him, so it was with Rama I's own Chinese fraklong. And Chin Kun also went on to serve the next king, Rama II, as well. So in this post-Ayutya period and Thai history, it was all about bouncing back from the disaster of 1767. And under the first three Chakri kings, Rama I, II, and III, 1782 to 1851, the kingdom prospered like never before in its history. And the Chakri dynasty didn't do too bad either. And along with this massive flood of wealth into the kingdom, a Bangkok elite emerged. And thanks in great part to the Chinese residents of Siam and the power of their incredible merchant network, the kingdom's economy expanded. You see, the main source of the monarchy's wealth was the royal trade monopoly. All the software and everything under the hood that ran the monopoly was written, produced, and directed by the Chinese. And most all of the trading junks plying goods back and forth between Guangdong, Fujian, Zhejiang, and ports in Siam, well, the red-collar vessels were operated by the Diochus, and the Hokkien, their junks were painted green. And like it is anywhere, I guess, certainly here in the U.S., 1849, 1850, with the California Gold Rush, word got back to the people in the home villages about all the amazing opportunities in far-off Siam. And they started flooding out of China to all these destinations that started popping up in the 19th century, especially after Europeans started showing up in the numbers they did. And so many of these immigrants who took that chance and came to the kingdom of Siam and started a new life there. They all married Siamese wives and slowly blended into the Siamese melting pot. In one or two generations, the ability to speak their ancestral language disappeared. And among the Bangkok elites were many mega-wealthy Chinese, and they were called Chao Sua. And these Chao Sua, they enthusiastically embraced Thai culture. And just as their ancestors used to do back in Chaozhou, back in the old country, well, they would leverage their daughters in order to climb up the social ladder, and they'd marry them into the most gilded families in the kingdom. Kings Rama VI and VII were born from a Chinese mother, the Queen of Rama V, who came from one of these Chaozhou families and married into the Siamese royal family. 
It was usually these Chao Su who were the families who built the temples, the palaces, public works, and acted in the capacity as compradors between the King of Siam and the Qing Empire. The monarchy had many spectacular marriage alliances between Chakri royals and these Chao Sua families. And again, one of the distinguishing characteristics of these Chao Sua was that they didn't cling to their traditional Chinese ways, and they completely embraced the Thai language, culture, and the lifestyle of their adoptive homeland. Today, there are many of Bangkok's richest and most celebrated families who can trace their lineage back to these 19th century Chao Sua. In general, but not exclusively, in the north, in and around Bangkok, and of course traveling east and south, down the peninsula on the Gulf of Thailand side, it was predominantly a Teochew-speaking area. But further down in the south, around Songkla and Ranong, this was Hokkien territory. They weren't involved as much in the outbound trade as much as the domestic businesses, especially the big one this far south in Siam, tin mining and collecting bird's nests. Huge, huge businesses. The Diojus ran things up in Bangkok, and these Hokkien Rajas, as they were called, or Chao Muang, they ran things at the southern end of Siam, and kept things peaceful with their Malay neighbors to the south. And as I mentioned at the outset, the Na Songkla family, the descendants of Hao Yang, or Wu Rang, they were one such Chao Muang family, who obtained royal favor in the form of landed estates, honorific titles, and access to lucrative commercial activities. And these Chao Muang families, like the Na Songkla, walked a tightrope from king to king, or fraklang to fraklang. When the time came to pull through for the monarchy, how fast you responded and the quality of your response meant everything. And even though they were Toxin people who owed their family's position to the personal relationship between Toxin and Wu Rang, when Rama I tested their allegiance to him, the Na Songkla family showed their loyalty to the Shakri dynasty. And this lasted, as I said, for eight generations. Today, the home of the Na Songkla family is the Songkla National Museum. I haven't been there, but it looks very beautiful and stately. We'll look at another one of these Hokkien Rajas. These wealthy and respected Hokkien families ran their provinces like a warlord, but time and again demonstrated loyalty to the crown and did plenty of good deeds along the way, too. So Rama III, he got to be the one on duty when Britain was at the height of its power and the East India Company, though not the terror they had once been, were still around and commanding respect. Well, until the company was disestablished in 1858. But in the 1830s and 1840s, when the British came to your port and started honking all over the place and making all kinds of demands, you had to shut up and listen, as the Daoguang Emperor found out the hard way. Rama III reigned during the same window of time as his unfortunate fellow royal over in Beijing, who, unbeknownst to him, had just ushered in China's century of humiliation. So it was that time now. We're all familiar with it and all the events that served as the earliest stepping stones leading to the ultimate establishment of the PRC in 1949. The Daoguang Emperor had to deal with the British, and so did King Rama III. In 1824, Britain had declared war on Burma. This was the first Anglo-Burma War, the first of three. 
Just like with China, the Burmese were no match for British warships and weaponry. Their army was wiped out. They ended up having to sign a peace that made the Treaty of Nanjing look stingy. And when Burma was still down, but not quite out, Britain came back at them two more times in 1852 and 1885. In the end, declaring an end to the Konbong dynasty, founded by Alung Puya, who we mentioned last episode. And then Burma well, suffered the ignominy of getting themselves annexed to the British Empire. Hey, the British didn't like what the French were doing over in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. They needed to have their own piece of Southeast Asia, too, to counter their rivals. So King Rama III saw how quickly and dreadfully his historical enemy to the West, Burma, had fallen. So he knew there was no way to defend against that. He couldn't stop the British from making all their demands, but he could delay the inevitable which is essentially what he did. He signed the Bernie Treaty in June 1826, but by the time the British ever got to see all those profits, quite a bit of time had passed since the promises were made. There was really only one thing that the British wanted in Siam, an end to the royal trade monopoly and free trade rights. In other words, they were demanding a piece of the monarchy's primary income source that they used not only for the country's benefit and to support the royal house, but to fund their military and defense of the nation. So this was no small thing the British were asking for. They saw all that wealth in Bangkok and knew this place was ripe for exploitation and would be a ready market for their Indian manufacturers. To offset this impending, crushing loss of tax revenue, the monarchy developed an old tried-and-true scheme that ended up generating a lot of money. It covered all the trade losses conceded to the British. This involved the art of tax farming. So the days of wine and roses were coming to a crossroads. Peacefully or not peacefully, the British were going to get free trade access to all the major ports of Siam. And all those years of having the monopoly and dealing in certain high-volume, high-profit-margin commodities... Well, the monarchy had to share it with others. And the king went right to these Chao Sua of Bangkok and granted them these concessions throughout the kingdom to collect taxes on things like salt and eh, a few dozen other valuable commodities. And this system worked out great. <laughs> yeah, nothing like tax farming. The king levied the taxes, and the tax farmers were the enforcers who made sure everybody ponied up. It was a great system, except for the one paying the taxes. And next episode, we are going to continue on with the reigns of Kings Rama III and IV. Over in China, it's the Qing Dynasty's four bad luck emperors, Daoguang, Xianfeng, Tongzhi, and Guangxu. In all of Siam, there were something like 440,000 ethnic Chinese, 1822. We'll see that number almost triple over the next quarter century. So do please consider coming back next time. The closer we get to the 20th century, some of this history might start to sound more familiar. All the terms, links, and whatnot are all meticulously written out for you at the website at teacup.media. Read along, learn a few new Chinese words. And if you'd like to donate to this humble cause with so many great aspirations, you can donate via PayPal or join my elite Patreon community. All that info can be found at the website at teacup.media. Did I say that already? 
That's all I got for you now, mis amigos y amigas. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California, recommending you come back next time for what's shaping up to possibly be another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.